Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. From wherever you are around the world, around the world, welcome to the Circle of Insight, a show that explores the many facets of human behavior and the wonders of the human mind. And now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome back, everybody. We have a great guest today, Seaburn Fisher. That's S-E-B-E-R-N, and last name is Fisher. Well, who is she, you ask? Well, she wrote a fabulous book. I really have to say it's a great book called Neurofeedback in the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Calming the Fear-Driven Brain. We're back onto the topic of trauma. You know, we did a series for a while. We jumped off, but we're coming back. Just going to give you an idea a little bit about the book. It's called, it says a little bit here, neurofeedback, a type of brain training that allows us to see and change the patterns of our brain has existed for over 40 years with applications as wide ranging as the treatment of epilepsy, migraines, and chronic pain to performance enhancements and sports. Today, leading brain researchers and clinicians interested in what the brain can tell us about mental health and well-being are also taking notice. And I can't wait to see what Seaburn Fisher has to say about it. Let's learn a little bit about her. Seaburn Fisher is a psychotherapist and neurofeedback practitioner in private practice who specializes in attachment issues. So we'll be going over a little bit of that. She trains professionals nationally and internationally on neurofeedback, neurofeedback and attachment disorder, and the integration of neurofeedback with psychotherapy. I think we got the right person. Before we get started, make sure to share, subscribe, and hit that like button. You know we like it. So let's not waste any more time. Welcome to the show, Seaburn Fisher. Welcome. Hi. Hello there. So this is, uh, again, a fascinating book. As, we've, as I told the audience, I'm doing a lot of shows and I'm reading myself on trauma and interviewing individuals. And I have a lot of friends in the soft, in, in the soft world, special forces world, um, getting to know them, the law enforcement world. Um, I teach criminal psychopathology. So trauma overlaps a lot yeah. <laughs> in that area. So it was really fascinating. But the one area that I hadn't come across a lot was neurofeedback. Uh, we've interviewed Dr. Porges about polyvagal theory and so forth, but neurofeedback, I didn't see it. I found your book, loved it, great aspect. Tell us a little bit about what got you involved in neurofeedback and then we'll guess we'll find out about the book too. Uh, well, um, thank you first for inviting me and I look forward to our talk. Um, a friend of mine, uh, a woman named Kathy Zilberman was investigating neurofeedback um, and I never heard of it. I was then the, this was back in the mid nineties. And uh, I was then the clinical director of a residential treatment facility for severely disturbed adolescents, some of whom came from the criminal justice system. All right. Um, and, um, uh, and we, we didn't have a high, we were considered one of the best facilities in the, uh, in the state. 
but we still didn't have a very high rate of success with these kids. And what Kathy was saying to me was, you know, uh, if this pans out, what I've been reading about and learning and going to workshops about, uh, kids can learn to train their brains. Um, they can play a video game with their brains. P uh, adults, anybody can learn to do this. In fact, cats learned it first and monkeys learned it and then human beings learned it. Um, and, uh, and they can learn to regulate their brains, which meant for these kids, uh, regulating uh, wild behaviors, aggressive behaviors, out of control behaviors, um, and learning problems and all, all kinds of things. And I was very skeptical, but open. And so um, I trained for a weekend uh, in neurofeedback and uh, did seven hours over a weekend, which is not recommended. I'm going to underline that because seven hours of neurofeedback training is a lot, but it changed my world. Uh, it changed my internal world. Um, and what I became aware of was that um, I had been living in a state of ambient fear. Ambient because I wasn't aware that it had such a claim over my functioning until it was no longer there. I wouldn't have described myself as fearful. I might have described myself as angry, but I wouldn't have described myself as fearful. Uh, and over time, uh, well, over that weekend, that all that dropped away. And a startle response that I had had for uh, my whole remembered life was uh, gone. It was gone. Wow. So I had to pay. Uh, that was the that was the feeling I had to. I had to pay attention to this. Um, this is something different. This is something more that I could offer these kids if this panned out, right? So very uh, shortly after that, a few months after that, as soon as I could go out, I went to California. Where you are very close to where you are, uh, and uh, trained in, uh, in how to do neurofeedback. And in that process of that particular uh, group, uh, headed by Susan and Siegfried Othmer, I learned a model called effect, uh, the affect regulation or arousal and regulation model. And that's the model of neurofeedback, of brainwave training, of training the brain that I use. So I have a passion for an informed passion, um, because I think most people who can't get a hold of this, what I've called the pulse of fear, they can't quiet that. They can compensate for it, they can control it, but they can't stop it. With neurofeedback, there's a very good chance, it's not 100%, but there's a very good chance that they will be able to quiet that pulse of fear and free themselves from, from that inheritance of their own childhoods. Uh, it's really interesting. One of the things I wanted to make sure people understood it, if you're in the world of psychotherapy, if you work with individuals with trauma, you've probably heard this already, but if you're new or a student, working with trauma clients is very different. And traditional talk therapy uh, doesn't <laughs> really work that well. Um, it's interesting because we know CBT Mm -hmm. and constantly gets the high praises, but it struggled a lot with trauma, so much so that they created the trauma CBT format, <laughs> which was basically 
everything else was already happening out there. We had this conversation, I think, with Roger Solomon from EMDR. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to highlight that because it, it does take a different type of style. And neurofeedback, when I was reading your book, seemed to do very well with it. Now it helped you. Did you did you apply it to those juveniles that you worked with as well? I, uh, it wasn't possible at the okay. time to do so, but several of them came back after they graduated from the program, uh, and and uh, found me or had kept touch with me and did train. And every one of them had positive effects. Every one of them. Every one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, significant really significant effects. Because the problem is in the brain, right? The problem is not only in the mind, secondary to the problem in the brain. And there's neuroscience now that shows the effects in the brain. I was just uh, writing, I'm just now writing a chapter for the third edition of a book on neurofeedback and QEG uh, around about trauma and showing this uh, neuroscience because uh, this is the work of Ruth Lanius and colleagues and students. Uh, in uh, Western Ontario, the University of Western Ontario in Canada. And um, the, uh, what they show is that uh, severely traumatized people don't develop a default mode network. The default mode network is the largest network in the human brain. And it is the network that gives rise to our sense of self and other. So if you're severely traumatized and you don't have that network, it just doesn't, it doesn't arise in that brain, then the sense of self and other can't arise either. And that's the core problem. It's the core problem with your population of criminals. They don't really see the other. They don't really know that they are the actors. Uh, this is you know, what we can see in sociopathy. They don't really get cause and effect. You know, there's all kinds of, they're not, they don't have past, present and future. All of that is held in the default mode network and they don't develop it because that network develops as Alan Shore describes through affect regulation. And these are kids, these people as kids don't have it. Uh, that's a great point. And it's interesting. We actually had a show on, on a um, professor who studies the default mode network. Doesn't make for a great title. <laughs> like, no, I gotta, no, no. I got to find but a fun Latin name for that one. The 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 um, the the senior researcher on this is Ruth Lanius, uh, and uh, this is her research that, and uh, as I said, it's her research that I'm quoting. Um, but it it really is eye opening as to you know what happens to the brains of people under assault as children. And, and if that is not treated and treated at the level of the brain, which neither drugs nor psychotherapy can do, uh, they will struggle with this for their life. I was a functional person. I live, you know, as the clinical director of this program, but I lived with this background terror all the time. And I'm sure it affected my relationships, you know, and so on, so on, you know, or, or how, how fast I rose in the system or whatever, you know, whatever. Uh, my tennis game. It, it affected everything. So um, the, uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 her findings are core for your students and all students of psycho, psychology to understand, to see how deeply impacted the functional brain is 
in those with developmental trauma. Let's do this. Let's try to see if we can create some distinctions too for listeners out there. We know their brain structures and the folks, this are the different types, the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex. We know there's functional connectivity, how they communicate with each other. But now, and then we also know there's neurochemicals, the cocktails, dopamine, all those things. But then we come to this part, the brain waves, where you talk about gamma, beta, alpha, theta. Do they, are they mutually exclusive? Do they work together in some capacity? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, what, what we're talking about is that another slightly different domain of brain function, which is the networks, right? Is how the, communi- how the brain communicates with itself, how it organizes itself, how it, how it um, uh, maintains, it's devoted to its own regulation because it has to be. And what we are practicing all the time are the errors in that, in that uh, functioning. So we can correct those with feedback to the brain in the electrical domain, which is what neurofeedback is. We can learn to, uh, in most cases, correct those glitches, right? And big glitches, trauma. So we see the, the, this is coded all of our, probably everything about our, our memories, our sense of self, everything is encoded in these frequencies that the brain makes, the ones you've just mentioned. Delta is a very slow wave. You see it commonly, I mean, regularly, typically in sleep. And, uh, but you'll see a lot of delta and theta, the next waveform up. So this is going from the lower to the higher. Um, uh, You'll see a lot of excess delta and theta in people with histories of developmental trauma. So they, and you'll see that in stroke and you'll see it in head injury. So you can think then about developmental trauma as a, um, as a, as a uh, brain injury of sorts, right? A developmental brain injury. It has the same signature. Uh, then, uh, but, but we make all of, every brain makes all of these waveforms in uh, all the time, except during sleep. So right now, hopefully, you and I are making more of a higher waveform called beta that will allow us to stay in this conversation and concentrate and focus. Um, But tonight, uh, uh, when we want to relax and we want to drift into, you know, toward rest and sleep, that wave, the amount of waveform that we make will move from beta as being the dominant waveform down into alpha as being the dominant waveform and then down into theta, which is the dreaminess before sleep, that kind of hypnagogic state before sleep, and then into delta. So uh, um, what we're trying to do in feedback is to say, okay, make more of this waveform that calms you, that calms your fear-driven brain. And that's to some degree, idiosyncratic. It could be very different what frequency does that for you and what does that for me. But typically we think around alpha because alpha is a relaxing waveform. It, it, it is the, the signature of relaxation. A to 11 hertz, alpha. Um, and so let's say I'm training you and you have that concern and you want to learn to relax. I mean, it could be any form of stress. Post-traumatic stress is just the worst. Um, and you would put, you would put, uh, I would put a sensor on your scalp. 
and reward you every time you made eight to 11 hertz. And you, and, and you would brain quickly recognizes this and it goes for more rewards, i.e. The, the video game Pac-Man moves forward or whatever it is, you know, whatever the video game is, you make more of the central rocket go and the rockets that represent the slow wave or the fast wave hold back, right? So you, so, uh, uh, so, and every time you meet all those conditions, which usually include making less slow wave as you are making alpha. So you're making a relaxing, relaxing waveform, but you're also teaching your brain not to make this uh, slow wave, which we think holds the reality of the trauma in some way, a, a controversial it's in controversy uh, what that actually means. I mean, it's fascinating to think about. But that's what we're doing. And every time you do that, you get rewarded. And guess, and your brain just wants that reward. It doesn't have, you know, as my my colleague Kathy said, you know, when that was when they were when they were training cats not to have seizures, they gave them chicken soup as a reward for for making the brain wave that they wanted them to make. When we, when we, all we need is just to say, oh, Pac-Man going faster and we're all on it, right? So. <laughs> now, I guess the questions, there's a lot of questions that popped up now, but one of them, does our brain, re- how long does it last? I guess some of the questions people would probably ask, is it just going to be lasting during that, tr- that session of learning how to get, you know, keep getting that reward from Pac-Man? Because it's kind of, kind of got a combination of behaviorism there and neurofeedback world, but does it last for long? Do you need several sessions? Oh, you need many sessions, particularly okay. if you had trauma. Um, my result was after set, let's say, you know, seven hours of training. So that would be about 14 sessions, but they were all jammed into one time. Typically oh, you have two sessions a week, right? And your brain then slowly is learning it. Typically people will, ha- if they have a response, uh, most people will, will hold that response for two or three days at the, after the first training. And then it, it drops away because the brain goes back to what's familiar, right? It goes back to its familiar functioning. Then you train it again. And intrinsically, the whole body brain feels better with the right reward, with the right frequency rewarded. And so over time, you've got the brain body on your side saying, I want more of this. So you get, so you, the learning speeds up. And, uh, but for trauma, where the brain is devoted to survival, it takes longer to convince the survival, this very primitive part of our brains uh, that are devoted to survival, that it's okay not to, 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 to not fire the amygdala not to fire, the threat detecting part of the brain, the reptilian threat detectors don't need to fire, you know, and it just takes a while to learn that. And then all all kinds of good things happen when you do. You can think more clearly, you can sleep better, you know, you get off meds, all all kinds of good things happen. I have to tell you, when I I did neurofeedback, um, yeah, you really do, you feel you can think much more clearly, as you mentioned, it's kind of bizarre and, and you, you, you're calmer. Yeah. You don't have these fleeting thoughts that sometimes take over <laughs> when you have a busy day 
and you have five different things, for some reason, the thoughts seem to come a lot slower at you where you can kind of process them instead of just, oh, oh, oh I got to yeah. do this and I got to do that. Right. Well, that's stress, right? What you're talking yeah. about is stress. And that, that, you know, this is FDA approved for stress reduction. And, you know, it's always approved for, but then, you know what, that's all it needs to be approved for because all of these DSM diagnoses are pretty, you know, there's, there's absolutely no scientific evidence to support the DSM diagnoses. There was a recent study coming to that conclusion out of your city of Liverpool, but we all knew that. There's really not all these discrete disorders. There's a problem in the brain. There's a problem in this person's being that, uh, that we can see in the brain and we can teach the brain to address or the brain can learn to address. Yeah, it's fascinating to bring that up. What is it? Just through feedback, right? Yeah. It needs feedback to, to learn to do it differently. Yeah, it's fascinating you bring that up because I know I was speaking to I apologize, I forgot her name. I think it was Dr. Fox. It was over in Texas. She's now, she's from England, but she was talking about how uh, borderline personality disorder is changing and how they, all the personality disorders are changing, how they define them. And they're kind of saying like you are, it's much more all together now and with a little bit of subsets to make them different. And they go off of the ICD-10, uh, ICD I think over in the UK. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, the DSM-5. It's all the same disaster, you know, it's a disaster because it's been, it's really corralled our thinking. And we don't, then we don't think newly about all of these things. We, we pocket, we put people in these different pockets. And I was, uh, Marsha Lenham and I were, uh, are still very good friends. And uh, she, she once said that she would uh, if, she, if she could, she would change borderline personality to affect regulation disorder. Well, that's right up my alley, right? And everybody's to some point or another has an affect regulation disorder or emotions. Now, she didn't like the word affect. Emotion regulation disorder is what she would have called it. And then she said that would have been stigmatized because it would have been given to women. And that would have been stigmatized in no time, too, just like borderline personality is stigmatized. Somebody, somebody here recently working in a clinic told me, in a mental health clinic, told me that uh, the folders, the files of borderline patients, the physical uh, file, would have a red letters across the top saying borderline personality disorder. <laughs> now, that doesn't set that person up, does it? Right? <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of planning on that one. Back to a question for the audience. You mentioned in the book, the treatment of developmental trauma. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What's the developmental trauma? Is there other types of traumas? Obviously, I know, but I want to see what your take is on it. Well, <laughs> developmental trauma is a term that was coined by Bessel van der Kolk and others um, together to, uh, to really describe um, the, the broad uh, nature of, of the consequence of early childhood neglect and um, mm. abuse and assault. Uh, and that it wasn't captured in attachment disorder, although attachment rupture is core issue in um, developmental trauma. Uh, 
it was captured there by that alone because you also had learning disabilities and you also have stuff that looks like ADHD and you have stuff that looks like OCD and you have stuff, you have all of these problems with behavior and emotional regulation and sleep and pain and immune function, all of that coming as a result of, of this uh, and, and included in the diagnosis of developmental trauma in ways that uh, PTSD is, is not. PTSD, and he was the originator of that diagnosis as well, so he gets some say here, that <laughs> uh, PTSD was uh, an attempt to describe in the 1980s what they were seeing with um, vets returning to uh, you know, from, from Vietnam and the, uh, and that it was that shell shock, well, it, it was shell shock in another age. And it was, yeah. it was in the civil war, it was called soldier's heart, which is so beautiful, right? Mm. Soldier's heart as a way of describing this terrible sequelae to being traumatized or seeing that your buddy, uh, uh, blown up or some uh, whatever terrible physical or emotional uh, wreckage you have had to participate in or or see. So, um, but that's an incident in adulthood that shouldn't, if it is truly PTSD, that's an incident in adulthood that has hijacked your nervous system. But when this happens, when there's no attachment with, or, or insufficient or poor attachment to mother and father, the mother and father aren't there, primarily the mother at the beginning. And, uh, and that's, we'll just call neglect at this moment. Or, and neglect can allow for predation. So elect, uh, if there's no mother and father, that child is the target of predators. And that then leads to the trauma that we talk about. So it's neglect and abuse and assault. And this is a brain that's completely disorganized in all of the realms that we've just described. They can't learn well, they don't have cause and effect, they have poor relationships, they have affect regulation problems, on and on and on. And we see that in the jails and we see that in the mental hospitals and we see that in the clinics and we see that on the street. We see that in the highest offices of the United States at certain times in our history. So, in corporations, I mean, you know, it's, it's it, affect regulation is essential to our humanity, and we don't we come by it through our earliest relationships with our mothers and fathers. It's amazing and, how. Oh, go ahead. No, and if they're not there, it's a it's it's pretty catastrophic for our development. It's amazing how sometimes we've fallen away from that. Sometimes you know, it, it doesn't take rocket science to figure out you need good parenting. You know, it, whether it's yeah. biological or not, the, the concept of affect regulation is so important. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's, it's really <laughs> remarkable sometimes. I know, well, I want to backpedal for a second. And I hope you don't mind if I also mention Dr. Vanderkork's book as well. Oh, no, please okay. do. There's, there's an interesting story I want to share with you. That hopefully, it'll bring some hope for you as well. Uh, but before we get to that, the developmental trauma aspect is interesting. And I don't think people realize how much of an impact, because that's 
if it happens at one year of age, three years of age, whatever it may be, the neurodevelopment process is compromised here. Mm-hmm. So it's, it has long-term effects, as you mentioned, and mm-hmm. criminal behavior and other things. But like, there's no criminal gene, folks. There's just traits that get manifested because of these dysregulations in the brain. But um, that's one of the impacts people don't see. And it almost kind of like hit them in the head when ACEs came out. When the adverse childhood experience is like, oh, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. If you score this high, you have an issue. Um, any thoughts on that? On, on why it's been so difficult for people to see this? or well, yeah. What do you think? I, I don't know. Maybe it's the centrality of the mother that people have trouble with. I mean, this is Winnicott, right? This is a long time ago. Yeah, enough uh, and Bowlby uh, talking about, and they were about, they were contemporaries. Um talking about how important the mother-child bond was, uh, that uh, nurture was all important to nature, right? And, and could change uh, nature. Or without nurture, you, you couldn't predict the, the, uh, the, the way a person would develop, although it wouldn't be good. So, um, but there was reaction against Bowlby, there was reaction, um, uh, you know, against uh, the whole idea of attachment. And, um, you know, it just went against the prevailing theories of Freud and Jung and, and probably not even if, if they had been young at the time, I don't think they would have been, they would have fought against this, but they had schools of thought that didn't have attachment at the center and uh, uh, created, um, you know, these kinds of false dialogues dialogues or false um, understandings, I think, of the, of the reality of, you know, we are little mammals and we need our, our mammalian mothers. We need protection and we need uh, training. We need, mostly we need someone attuned to us. And when they, when the attunement fails to repair the attunement, this is just fundamental. I don't think there's any I mean, there's going to be argument about everything, but there's but there's no credible argument against attachment as being core. Yeah, it's really fascinating because I see our profession bifurcating now, and at least in the area of trauma and the area of people who don't have, there's different degrees of trauma, but it's interesting how it's starting to bifurcate a little bit more and more because you have people like Dr. Shore, Dr. Vandercourt, yourself, others who continually supply more and more neuroscience and research to support a lot of the uh, claims that are being made. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to watch uh, these two tracks starting to develop in the profession of psychology. The story I wanted to share with you quickly is um, an individual I saw on Instagram, never met him before. He was part of a group that consists of personal trainers, special forces, law enforcement, and they teach males how to be men, I guess. And it was interesting because it's a very unique program. I, you know, I'm not gonna mention it right now, but it's a unique program. One of the parts of it consists of a version of a Navy SEAL training mm-hmm. to harden the mentality, right? Special forces, a lot of people think of just tough guys, but in reality, it's a lot of main, uh, mental work that they're going through to be able to endure things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one aspect that they do. And it's a very costly program. Um, but a lot of business people will do it, men who are looking for purpose or, or different things in their life. I guess what it stood out to me was that individual on Instagram 
had a seven minute clip that he recorded of himself talking about childhood trauma and how it changed him. And then he shows body keeps score <laughs> mm-hmm. on there. And for me in today's society, those two things didn't click for a second. Yeah. Cause I'm yeah. looking at this guy going, he's a tough guy, yeah, tough program. And here he is sh- talking about his childhood trauma being abused as a child. And he shows that book and it just, it blows my mind sometimes when I hear that because you don't see that as a society in general. You know, uh, that the, um, that book, the body keeps the score has been at the top of the nonfiction bestseller list for 127 weeks. Is it right? <laughs> this, is speak, this is speaking to someone, right? Oh, absolutely. This, and, and, uh, and interestingly, it, the sales go up at Christmas time. Oh, fascinating. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I guess I can, I can see that. And folks, again, we're talking to Seaburn Fisher, just in case you got <laughs> lost for a second on the other book. It's uh, S-E-B-E-R-N, Neurofeedback and the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Calming the Fear-Driven Brain. We talked a lot about um, developmental trauma, Seaburn. It is a lot more still to talk about. We don't have that kind of time on the show, but <laughs> so there's a lot of areas of trauma that you break down in your first four or five chapters. A fabulous job, really easy understanding for people to, to grasp how trauma affects us as human beings and affects our mind and how it influences our behavior and perception of the world. And then you get very detailed on the neurofeedback aspect because it gets a little bit complicated after a while. Um, what's the purpose of those chapters? Are these for people who want to help others for neurofeedback? Is this for other individuals to understand more about it? Right. This is, well, both. And it's also so that I don't write two books. Yeah. <laughs> one, one that is technical and one that is clinical. So it's just uh, people who are not interested in doing our three can just skip over those technical chapters and go into the case study. But it will help you understand uh, what's going on uh, and what's required, at least in the approach that, that I use for neurofeedback. Not, not all neurofeedback is, um, is, is, I think, attuned to affect regulation as this approach is. But I think it's very important in the, in the treatment of trauma to be that attuned. Uh, so that's why it, it's, it's not only, not all neurofeedback is the way I describe it, but not everybody that does the kind of neurofeedback I do thinks about it exactly the same way. As we were talking about before we went on air, as it were, uh, this is a quant interface with the quantum universe. There's nothing more complex than the signal from the human. It's the most complex signal in the universe, the signal of the human brain. So uh, we're having an interface with changing the way that brain is firing. Uh, we have to be humble about that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Let's do this, Seaburn. I want to be your client, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go visit you wherever you are. And I said, okay, let's go ahead and do a session. Walk me through that a little bit. Well, we would first first do an assessment together, right? I would go through, and it's a little bit different than our typical clinical assessment because it's it's also in the book. I go through the whole process of assessment. It's what we're trying to do is get an idea of what your nervous system is like. You know, do you kick the dog? Do you uh, make every free throw? Do you... uh, um, fall asleep easily? Do you have nightmares? So, you know, there are a lot of 
of questions that I ask and that we would discuss that give me an idea of whether you are fall in one of four categories or, or one of three categories or in all of the above. You can be under aroused. Very few people in our society, as you might agree, are under aroused, but you can be under aroused. And that is what we think of as ADD or attentional problems. So you can't quite rise to the occasion of your life and live it. And you, so, you know, there's, there's um, under arousal. And certain kinds of depression can be seen as under arousal. Uh, certain sleep problems are under arousal. Much more commonly, we will see over arousal. And there are a whole list of, 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 of things in attention, in sleep, in emotional, in uh, as emotional symptoms, pain symptoms, it will fall in either under or over arousal. So I'll get an idea from what you tell me of where your nervous system, the tenor of your nervous system. You can also have an unstable nervous system. This is panic disorder, migraine, epilepsy. Those are sort of neurological, uh, um, bipolar disorder is an instability in the brain. So you, you can then, uh, and each one of these will call for different approaches, different protocols and training. So then I would, we would decide on a protocol. I would explain all of this to you so that you were my partner in this. We were going in this together to figure out the, how you could best regulate your, to see if this is doing it, whatever my protocol suggestion is, you would then tell me, oh, I slept better, or I was up all night, or I was, you know, I, I, I last night I had, uh, you know, I just had a sip of alcohol and I felt like I was gonna, I was drunk already. That's a, uh, not an uncommon report. Um, those, those kinds of uh, indicators and, you would know what to tell me if I had if we had this conversation well enough. You'd know what to be looking for. And the thing that I usually ask people when we're beginning is did anything you do or say, did anything you did or say surprise you or surprise someone close to you? And when I describe my experience of, you know, suddenly not having a startle response, a friend of mine said to me, without, without being specific, she said, who are you? Now, I don't know who she was referring to. I don't know what her experience of me was, but it was clearly different and it wasn't in a charged situation at all. So she was picking up something that was the change in, this, in my central nervous system, in my peripheral nervous, but in my nervous system and that expressed itself in different behaviors, facial expressions, whatever way, all the different ways that it can. And we would be tracking all of that. And you start to, and we'd only reward, we'd only set up protocols and reward you to make certain things and, and not make other things if it felt good to you. Right? I mean that's the that's the, you know, the only the only caveat to that is that when people have this antisocial element to them, right. if you raise the arousal too high, they can feel that antisocial impulse uh, more strongly. And that would be something that they would endorse because it would be syntonic, right? So mm -hmm. you have to watch for that. And with many trauma survivors, not only those who we 
we already qualify as antisocial, but many trauma survivors have a, have a strain, will understandably have a strong strain of antisocial orientation. And we don't want to, uh, to endorse that in their nervous systems or have them endorse it. So, but other than that, it's you're calmer, are you less reactive? Are you, um, you know, do you, you feel better regulated in your body, even your bowel, uh, and your swallowing reflux can get better, uh, pain can get better, um, and emotional reactivity can quiet down. We'd just be charting that as each time we met until you felt like it was sufficient and I agreed and then he'd say, okay. And come back if something jars you out of this place because your earlier, whatever your pattern was that you came in to train for, like let's say not being able to fall asleep, that could reassert itself if the conditions were right. Like, you know, like uh, there was a fire or you had to deal with, you know, some terrible catastrophe. You could then not sleep and come back in and we say, oh, well, we, we know that default position of your brain, let's train. And typically uh, three or four trainings would get you back to sleeping again. And how long are the trainings again? Uh, my, the, the amount of training that I do typically is between six to 12 minutes. Oh, wow, that fast. And the rest of the session is uh, therapy or getting yeah. reports on what you have experienced, you know. So I want to know how, how, the, how the two or three days were since I've seen you last. Let me ask you this. How, in the world of research, right, generalizable, how, how generalizable is it? I mean, can, can, you, can a therapist just pick up neurofeedback, get the training you have, and then incorporate their own therapy? So if they, if they believe in CBT or if they're a Jungian or something like that, does it work or is there a special type of therapy, theoretical orientation? Oh, that's a very good question. I, I, I think, you know, first of all, what I have found, and you know, it's my area is trauma, is that good sensitive trauma therapists make very good neurofeedback practitioners because they're picking up on clues all the time about how their patient is how they dissociating, are, you know, whatever it is, right? Are they with me? Are they, you know, is their arousal too high? All before neurofeedback, they're looking for all of those things. They're looking for not triggering their patients so on. So they become typically very good uh, neurofeedback practitioners. So if there was a group that I would select to do neurofeedback, it would be that group. Um, that being said, whatever approach they use from, it's, uh, you know, whatever they're most comfortable with, uh, that's what they should use. My own is uh, therapy of choice has been object relations or sort of analytic object relations approaches. But when people come in and they're very caught in these dilemmas that we've been discussing uh, and they are fear bound and it's just a looping and stuckness and fear, DBT is actually much more helpful than any kind of analytic or object relations therapy. It's really how do you get through the night until neurofeedback takes over or your nervous system takes over its own regulation. Interesting. That reminds me of, a, of an older interview I did with Dr. Jill Sharp <laughs> with object <laughs> relations. She was really nice. Um, what was that? Oh, I'm kind of having a, a I'm trying to think now. 
because there's DBT and there's a new form of therapy now. I want, I want to keep saying mentalism, but it's just, it's, it's not the word. <laughs> there's a new form of therapy right now that's working with uh, borderline personality disorders that seems to be quite effective as well. Oh, I can't think of the word starts. I know it's mental something or mentation or. Uh, I don't know it either. I mean, yeah. I don't even know. So, you know, okay. I, I think that the thing is, is that we can keep developing talk therapies forever. And if we yes. don't address the, these, these circuits that keep firing in the traumatized brain, uh, those talk therapies are gonna always be less effective than they could be. At the very least, they're less effective. If not, in some cases, just not a good use of our time. So particularly uh, analytic or object, sort of those deeper mental, those deeper emotional kinds of therapies and not the behavioral ones. Those are uh, very difficult to manage for people who are caught in fear circuits. And so to understand their, themselves, I, I go to psychoeducation and I use many of the skill sets of DBT in, for people who uh, don't have much insight and are just driven by fear. So I just, that's how we, and then that, that therapy changes as they find themselves more as they are, are less fear driven. That makes a lot of sense. I have a couple of different questions as we get towards the end. We're in the last few minutes. Again, folks, the book is called Neurofeedback and the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Calming the Fear-Driven Brain. Um, this question probably to, for, for listeners who are either in grad school right now or, or already practicing. And if you're not, maybe curiosity will, uh, will intrigue you. Does it have a, does, is there a conflict of interest in the sense of, or conflict with EMDR? at all or can you do both no people a lot of people do both okay. um i haven't done both and i think that one of the things is you know bessel's career and he talks about it in his book uh one uh, you know he, he was he's been on a search he continues to be on a search for what will help people with these histories uh and um the problem that he felt what what happened with the mdr was too often with developmental trauma was that EMDR, it was never a single incident. It's never a single thing that you are processing and, and reworking in whatever mysterious way EMDR actually works. Um, but so, uh, and to all too often just opens Pandora's box and doesn't, it doesn't close something. So, and you know, you don't address learning disability uh, uh, affect regulation, you're really dealing with a memory and not letting it hijack you with EMPR. With, with neurofeedback, you are taking on uh, and working with the, the traumatized brain as it fires and as it learns to reorganize itself and quiet itself down. That's a great distinction. I think it's a really important distinction. Let me ask you this. Uh, I guess the last question is kind of along the same lines, contraindications. You mentioned epilepsy earlier. Is there any issues with any kind of uh, types of mental disorders, which like epilepsy and neurofeedback, any contraindication there at all? Well, there a contraindication would be that uh, your license as a psychologist or a psychotherapist does not allow you to treat seizures. It does allow you to treat panic disorder, right? They're, they're not actually that different. They're That's just, true. they're really not. And, um, but, but you can't, 
uh, train epilepsy and you, you're not, I mean, you're not, I mean, you can't work with epilepsy by the limit of your licensure. And I ask people to respect the limits of their licensure, right? But some of the best research in neurofeedback has been done on epilepsy. So mm -hmm. neurologists should be very interested in, in epilepsy. Uh, Barry Sturman at the University of, Calif of California uh, uh, was able to uh, quiet seizures that were provoked in cats. And so I was mentioning cats could get rewarded just by having a little chicken uh, broth after they made the right brain waves. So they quieted the potential to seizure. Then they got, they helped, they uh, taught monkeys how to control seizures. And then they took people off the psychosurgery roles at UCLA. Now these are people who are going to have brain surgery because they couldn't control seizures. They've got parts of their brain either cut or removed, okay? And they took people on on the wait list, or you know, awaiting these surgeries, and taught them how to regulate their brains. And not one of them went back for surgery. And most of them had did controlled seizures without using medications. Wow! Really? I know it's huge. Why is this <laughs> unknown? Right? Why we're, is this unknown? We're CNN. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Sweet. Exactly. Wow. Sounds like I'm going to have to have another guest on the show for that one. That's a fascinating one. Um, I guess my other question would be disassociation. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen that. Um, does that. How does that look in the world of neurofeedback? Are we talking high degrees of delta, theta? What's going on here with disassociation? Or does it all play the same? No, um, dissociation is a particular uh, signature in, in, in the brain. And this, again, is the work of Ruth Lanius, who explicates this. What happens with uh, dissociative brains is that at the, at the moment of perceived threat, the PAG, the periaqueductal gray, the threat detector in the reptilian part of the brain, uh, signals to the amygdala it, it's time for action. So the, the, the cascade of activity starts at the PAG in the brainstem. Uh, and that linkage, that functional connectivity between the PAG and the amygdala shows up um, in as dissociation. And the whole body mind is different once dissociation comes in. Uh, high arousal, um, hyper arousal becomes hypo arousal. There's a shutdown of the system. And um, the, this is, to me, that, that um, functional connectivity that from between the PAG and the amygdala that leads to shutdown is death, death feigning in the human brain. That's what, you know, prey animals feign their own deaths to escape the predator. Human beings do the same thing, but they, they don't, they're not successful at escaping the predator by feigning their deaths, typically. So often, I mean, they can be. And we hear stories about that all the time. But typically, the child abuse victim has not been able to fool their predator to keep them from from uh, the assault. So, uh, and, and we also know that the bigger assault is neglect uh, to begin with. So um, 
so, but anyway, that's what you see. And I think that that is that connectivity is equivalent to death feigning and prey animals. It's interesting because I know in my world, I do situational training consulting every so often, and we call it fight, flight, or freeze. Mm-hmm. And, and exactly what the death feigning aspect of it is. Does neurofeedback help with that? The individuals? I've trained a a number of people with DID. And one of the case studies in the book, in fact, is a a case study of of a woman with dissociative identity disorder and what happens. And it's it's moment by moment. It's session by session. And I report exactly what happened. And not every session went well. But after 95 sessions of neurofeedback, she was no longer dissociative. Really? Yeah. She said, now I'm just your average PTSD. Right? So she still felt the fear. We had much more to do, but she wasn't dissociating anymore. She wasn't splitting into multiple personalities. Oh. It's a fantastic. Yeah. It's a fascinating, fascinating topic. I could be here all day with you, Super. (laughs) I know. I know. I've enjoyed it too. I guess my last two questions. Um, one's a question, one's a comment, but my, my last question to you, what's your, what are your thoughts about, we hear a lot of stuff about magnetic waves, cell phones, radios. It always reminds me of a line in Jurassic Park, one of my favorite movies I know, um, where he says, uh, Jeff Goldblum has this famous line where he says, we're so busy wondering whether we could, we never ask whether we should. <laughs> and I think research seems to fall into that a lot of times. And developing technologies, but is there anything there in regards to neurofeedback, brain waves, magnetic waves and phones, or have you ever thought about that at all? I have thought about it and I keep my cell phone away from my brain. But what, but what the science, you know, what, what the science is gonna show over time, I don't know, but it feels to me that we know that everything is waves, right? The, the waveforms in the human brain are calling the shots or the, the oscillations of the brain or where the action is. And we introduce uh, other powerful oscillation, oscillations near the brain, we're probably affecting it. So I don't keep my cell phone anywhere near my vital organs. I don't keep it near myself. Um, but but I'm not you know I'm not your I'm not an expert on this at all I'm just pragmatic about it. All right, it's, it's an interesting question, and uh, we'll definitely have another show for that, folks. I guess my comment would be: uh, you wonder. Um, I don't know if you ever were a Pink Panther fan. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and I think it was Dreyfus when he was totally at the end towards his. I think he got into a psychotic <laughs> mode. Uh, the, 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 I forget what he was, Inspector Dreyfus or something like that. Uh, no, he wasn't an inspector. Anyway, he created that one big machine that could beam <laughs> all this. And I just wonder if we could ever create one big neurofeedback machine to calm society down. <laughs> I think it would be great. Yeah. But, you know, on that, there, there is a nearly as utopian a vision, uh, which is Bessel Vanderkoek. His, if he could, uh, as it were, snap his fingers and make a change in society that was that is practical, that is doable, it would be that every child learns affect regulation in the school, 
right? Because they're not all going to learn it at home because their parents haven't learned it. They haven't had good parents. It goes back forever and ever into your great grandparents. So, uh, you know, what if they had the opportunity to learn mindfulness and learn breathing and learn meditation principles and learn about their brains and, and those, uh, you know, either who want to get their performance better in the peak performance mode or quiet their nervous systems because they're, you, you know, they're erupting all the time, then uh, they could also do neurofeedback. And this would be possible much better, I think, than special ed as we know it now. Would be, it would be available to people. I, I think it should be available to every school child everywhere. Absolutely. I completely agree. Again, folks, the book, Neurofeedback and the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Calming the Fear-Driven Brain by Seaburn Fisher. It's S-E-B-E-R-N, F uh, period Fisher. Definitely get the book. I highly recommend it. It's on Amazon.com. You can find it there. It's a great, great read. Also on Audible. Oh, an Audible too. Oh, great. I like that too. Listen to it on the car. Folks, I mean, Seaburn, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you very much, folks. Thanks for listening. Make sure to share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know, we like it. Get the book. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.